Welcome to The History of the Christian Church, Season 1, with Lance Rolston. Late have I loved you, O beauty so ancient yet so new. Late have I loved you. You were within while I was without. I sought you out there. Unlovely, I rushed heedlessly among the lovely things you made. You were with me, but I not with you. These things kept me far from you, even though they'd not even be unless you made them. You called and cried aloud and opened my deafness. You gleamed and shined and chased away my blindness. You breathed fragrant odors and I drew breath. And now I pant for you. I tasted and now I hunger and thirst. You touched me and I burned for your peace. Thus wrote Augustine of Hippo, in his classic, Confessions. This episode of Cumunia Sanctorum is titled, Augustine, Part 1. We turn now to the life and work of a man of singular importance in the history of the Church, due to his impact on theology. I'll be blunt to say what it seems many, maybe most, are careful to avoid when it comes to Augustine. While the vast majority of historians laud him, a much smaller group are less enthused with the man as I hope becomes clear as we review him and his impact. Augustine is the climax of patristic thought, at least in the Latin world. And by patristics, I mean the theology of the church fathers. If you've ever had a chance to look through collections of books on theology or church history, you've likely seen a massive set of tomes called the Anti and Post-Nicene Fathers. That simply means the church fathers that came before the Council of Nicaea, and those who came after and helped lay the doctrinal foundation of the church. Augustine was the dominant influence on medieval Europe, so much so that he's referred to as the architect of the Middle Ages. Augustine continues to be a major influence among Roman Catholics for his theology of the church and the sacraments, and for Protestants in regard to his theology of grace and salvation. Augustine's backstory is well known because there's plenty of source material to draw from. Some say that we know more about Augustine than any other figure of the ancient world because not only do we have a record of his daily activities from one of his students, Posidius, Bishop of Kalama, we also have a highly detailed record of Augustine's inner life from his classic work, Confessions. We also have a work titled Retractions, where Augustine chronicles his intellectual development as he lists 95 of his works explains why they were written and the changes that he made to them over time. Let me begin his story by laying the background of Augustine's world. The end of the persecution of the first two centuries was a great relief to the church. No doubt the reported conversion of the Emperor Constantine seemed a dream come true. The Apostle Paul had told the followers of Christ to pray for the king and all those in authority. So the report of the emperor's conversion was a cause of great rejoicing. It was likely only a handful of the wise who sensed a call to caution in what was this new relationship between church and state and what it would mean and maybe the perils it might bring. During the 4th century, churches grew more rapidly than ever, but now all those who joined did so with less than pure motives. With persecution behind them, some joined the church to hedge their bets and add one more deity to the list. Others joined thinking that it would advance their social status now that being a Christian could earn them points with officials. Some sincere Christians witnessed the moral and spiritual dumbing down of the faith 
and fled to the wilderness to pursue an ascetic lifestyle as a hermit or into a monastery as a monk. But most Christians remained in their cities and towns to witness the growing affiliation between church and earthly institutions. The invisible, universal, or Catholic church began increasingly to be associated with earthly forms and social structures. I need to pause here and make sure that everyone understands that the word Catholic simply means universal. Historically, this is the age of Catholic Christianity, not Roman Catholic Christianity. Historians refer to this time and the Eastern Orthodox Church as Catholic to differentiate it from the several aberrant and heretical groups that had split off. Groups like the Arians, the Manichaeans, Gnostics, and Apollinarians, and as well as a half dozen other hard-to-pronounce sects. But towards the end of the 4th century, the institutional replaced the communal aspects of the faith. The gospel was supplanted by dogma and rituals in many churches. Jesus made it clear that following him meant a call to serve, not be served. Christians are servants. They serve God by serving one another in the world. During the first three centuries, when the church was being battered, the call to serve was valued as a priority. The heroes of the faith served by offering themselves in the ultimate sense with their very lives. But when the church rose out of the catacombs to enter positions of social influence and power during the fourth century, being a servant lost priority. Church leaders, who'd led by serving for 300 years, began to position themselves to be served. Servant leaders became, well, leaders of servants. This change escalated with the disintegration of the Western Empire during the 4th and 5th centuries. As foreigners pressed in from the north and the east, the civil authorities fled from the frontiers. People looked more and more to the bishops and the church leaders to provide guidance and governance. We've already seen how the church and bishop at Rome emerged not only as a religious leader, but a political leader as well. The fall and sack of Rome by the Vandals in 410 rocked the empire, leaving people profoundly shaken. One man emerged at this time to help deal with their confusion and anxiety over what the future might hold. Augustine was born in 354 in Tagaste, a small commercial city in North Africa. His father, Patricius, was a pagan and a member of the local ruling class. His mother, Monica, was a committed Christian. And though far from wealthy, Augustine's parents were determined that he should have the very best education possible. After attending primary school in Tagaste, he went to Carthage for secondary education. It was there, at the age of 17, that he took on a mistress with whom he lived for the next 13 years and by whom they had a son named Adiodatus. While this seems scandalous, realize that it was, well, not really all that uncommon for young men of the upper classes to have such an arrangement. Augustine seems to have had a genuine love for this woman, even though he fails to give us her name. It's certain that he did love their son, and even though Augustine loved his girlfriend, he later wrote throughout these years he was continually hammered by sexual temptation and often despaired of overcoming it. Augustine pursued studies in philosophy in general, picking no specific school as the focus of his attention. When he was 19, he read the now-lost Hortensius by the Roman orator Cicero and was convinced that he should make the pursuit of truth his life's aim. But this noble quest battled with what he now felt was a degrading desire toward immorality. For moral assistance to resist the downward pull, he defaulted to the faith of his mother's home and turned to the Bible. 
But being a lover of classical Latin, the translations that he read seemed crude and unsophisticated and held no appeal. What did appeal to Augustine was the Manichaeans with whom he'd already treated. By way of review, Mani was a teacher in Persia in the mid-third century who mashed a Gnostic-flavored religion together with the ancient Persian ideas that were embodied in the religion of Zoroastrianism. Augustine was an intellectual, the kind of person that Manichaeanism appealed to. They disdained faith, saying that they were the intellectual gatekeepers of reason and logic. They explained the world in terms of darkness and light. Light and spirit were good, darkness and the physical were evil. The key to overcoming sin was an early form of the campaign that was used on public school campuses in the United States a few years ago regarding drugs. Just say no. Augustine was told that if he just employed total abstinence from physical pleasure, well, he'd do well. He was a Manichaean for nine years until he saw its logical inconsistencies and left. His record of this time reveals that while he remained within their ranks, he had problems all along. Assuming that he just needed to learn more to clear up those problems, the more he studied, the more problems popped up. When he voiced his concern, other Manichaeans told him, well, if he could just hear the teaching of Faustus, all his concerns would dissolve. Faustus was supposed to be the consummate Manichaean who had all the answers. Well, Faustus eventually arrived, and Augustine listened in expectation that everything that he'd been doubting would evaporate like dew in the morning sun. That's not what happened. On the contrary, Augustine said that while Faustus was eloquent of speech, his words were like a fancy plate holding rotten meat. He sounded good, but his speech was empty. Augustine even spent time with Faustus, trying to work through his difficulties, but the more that he heard, the more he realized the man was clueless. So much for Manichaeanism being the gatekeeper of reason. At the age of 20, Augustine began teaching. His friends recognized his intellectual genius and encouraged him to move to Rome. In 382, closing in on the age of 30, he and his mother moved to the capital where he began teaching. As often happens when someone's religious and philosophical house is blown over like a stack of cards, Augustine's disappointment with Manichaeanism led to a period of disenchantment and skepticism. Remember, he'd given himself to the pursuit of truth and had assumed for several years that Mani had found it. Now he knew he hadn't. Once bitten, twice shy, works for philosophy as well as romance. Augustine was rescued from his growing skepticism by Neoplatonism and the work of Plotinus, who fanned to flame his smoldering spark of longing for truth. In 384, Augustine was hired as a professor of rhetoric at the University of Milan, where his now-widowed mother Monica and some friends joined him. More out of professional courtesy as a professor of rhetoric than anything else, Augustine went to hear Milan's bishop, Ambrose, preach. Augustine was surprised at Ambrose's eloquence. It's not like this was his first time in a church. He'd attended the churches of North Africa while growing up there, but he'd never heard anyone speak like this. Ambrose showed Augustine that the Christian faith, far from being crude and unsophisticated, was both eloquent and intelligent. An elder at the church named Simplicianus made Augustine his personal project. He gave Augustine a copy of a commentary on Paul by Marius Victorinus, who'd converted from Neoplatonism to Christianity 30 years before. Being a Neoplatonist himself, Augustine went through something of an intellectual conversion, if not a spiritual transformation. 
Augustine's future was bright. He had a prestigious job, committed friends, wealth, influence, and he was still young and healthy. But inwardly, he was miserable. His mother Monica suggested that what he needed was a normal family. Of course, she was against his long-time but illicit affair with his girlfriend, the mother of his son. She had followed him on all of his various moves, to Tagaste, from Carthage, to Rome, then Milan. Monica now told Augustine that his girlfriend was keeping him from finding a suitable wife, someone more fit for his social standing. Though Augustine loved her, his mother's constant urging to put her away eventually moved him to locate his inner unrest with his mistress and so he ended their relationship. He then proposed to a young woman of wealth and society. The problem is she was too young to marry, and so a far-off date was set. Well, in the meantime, Augustine couldn't master his lust, and only a short time after breaking up with his mistress, he found another. From Augustine's own account of his struggles in the confessions, we might describe his problem as a, well, sexual addiction. His inner battle between the higher call of virtue and the lower pull of vice threatened to tear him apart in an emotional breakdown. It was then, as he devoured material in his quest for truth, that he heard of Christian hermits like Anthony of Egypt who had mastered their fleshly desires. Their example shamed Augustine. Until then, he'd consider Christians as intellectually inferior, yet they were able to accomplish a victory over sin he'd been powerless to attain. He began to wonder if maybe Christianity possessed a power that he'd missed. Conversion became for Augustine, as it was for so many at that time, not so much an issue of faith as of action. He was persuaded of the intellectual strength of Christianity. He just did not want to give up his sin, though he knew he should. One day in 386, while walking in the garden of his house, his soul seething in confusion and moral anguish, he carried a Bible hoping to draw guidance from it but he could make no sense of it. And so he dropped it on a bench and paced back and forth, his mind in torment. From somewhere nearby, he heard a child's voice calling out the line of, well, what must have been a game, though Augustine didn't know it. The voice said, Tali Leggy, take up and read. He reached down, picked up the Bible that he just dropped. The page fell open to Romans 13, where his eyes fell on words perfectly suited to his current mindset. He read, let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, nor in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. Augustine later wrote, quote, As I read these words, instantly it was as if the light of peace poured into my heart and all the shades of doubt departed, unquote. The following Easter, Augustine and his son, Adiodatus, were baptized by Bishop Ambrose. A few months later, Augustine returned to North Africa. On the way, his mother Monica died, and not long after he returned to Tagaste, his son also passed. Augustine lost interest in living and longed to leave the world that he had once longed for. His friends rallied round and gave him a purpose to carry on. They formed a monastic community out of which would come the famous Augustinian order and rule. While Augustine would likely have been content to live out his life in the monastery, the North African church desperately needed a leader with his gifts. In 391, the church at Hippo ordained him as one of their priests. He ended up doing the lion's share preaching because their bishop was Greek and could speak neither Latin nor the local Punic. He became co-bishop four years later 
and then a year after that, sole bishop at Hippo. He served in that capacity for the next 33 years. He kept up the monastic life throughout his tenure as bishop at Hippo. His was an extremely busy career, divided between study, writing, and general oversight of church affairs. We'll pick it up at this point in our next episode as we consider some of his more important writings, and then we'll get into Augustine's career as a theologian. Thanks for joining us at Communio Sanctorum. We really appreciate your listening and subscribing. Listeners are invited to like the Communio Sanctorum Facebook page and to write a review in the iTunes store. For both Facebook and iTunes, search for History of the Christian Church. Looking forward to joining you next time.